I, like many, thought Amelia Earhart was the first American woman to earn a pilot's license. Even in her autobiography, she claims to be the first American woman with a pilot's license. And that's not true. One other American woman got her license two years before Amelia Earhart. Unfortunately, she wasn't allowed to fly in America. In our white-centric history, many Americans have forgotten about the first woman who took to the skies and inspired generations to work towards equality. That woman is who we're going to be talking about today. My name is Morgan Esberg, and with me is my co-host, Annika Sieverts. Hi, welcome to Women Travel, a podcast about the places women have been and the things they did there. So Annika, before I tell who this mystery person is, I'd like to start off with discussing piloting for context. How does a man or a woman get a pilot's license? Now and then, in terms of the 1920s and 2020, 100 years later, uh, getting your license hasn't changed that much. Uh, there's kind of two uh, routes that a pilot can take. There's uh, private lessons, or you can go through an academic course to get it. So in the 1920s, what a private uh, license would look like is you would find a kind of smaller company that had like maybe one or two instructors who would have you in a two-seater biplane, meaning a plane that has two wings on top of each other. And the instructor would sit behind you in the cockpit and tug on your shirt to tell you when to do maneuvers because they didn't really have good headsets back then. Uh, and you're just kind of flying with an open canvas, meaning there's no top on uh, top of the airplane while you're flying, which is why they have those goggles and earmuffs to keep warm. I thought it was to keep all the bugs out of people's eyes. <laughs> that too. But also thinking about how much wind is going, your eyes are going to dry out real fast. <laughs> From there, the student would then have to do a form of ground school, meaning they'd have to learn uh, the mechanics of the airplane such as what is a lift, uh, how you get your uh, prop to work, doing a prop check where you're, uh, that's one of the favorite things because they have these big propellers where nowadays you have like a machine to help start it, but you had to physically like turn on the airplane and then throw down the propeller. And so what people would do, I'll kind of get away from the mic for this, is they'd be like, prop check, boom, and then it would just start up. private license nowadays, it really hasn't changed that much except for the way the airplane looks like. So instead of the instructor sitting behind you, he's sitting next to you and you actually have nice headsets and you don't have to do the prop check. I mean, you still have to yell out the window prop check really loud so people know you're moving on. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of early pilots did uh, private licensing and then would do more like uh, performance uh, flying solo. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, there's many ways for people to get a career in piloting. The most popular is essentially like a circus called barnstorming, which I think we might talk about a little bit later. But essentially it's just a bunch of weirdos with their planes doing psychotic trips. So most people are like, you can't do that now. You can only do it in a, they call it a Citabrio. It was called Citabrio because when the plane would do a backwards loop, backwards it would read acrobatic. So it was an acrobatic airplane that could do insane stunts. Like a driver's license, how do you get a pilot's license itself? One, you need money. Uh, and two, you essentially have to be able to dedicate the work. So essentially, I wouldn't say everyone can get a pilot's license, but 
the industry is actually changing it to be more like disabled friendly. So it wasn't until this year where like pilots who were diabetic could no longer do commercial flying. But this year they made a new regulation that says, no, it's fine because, you know, insulin regulation, as long as you can pass a medical, which is where you go see a doctor who specializes in making sure that you can see far enough and be healthy enough to do maneuvers in the airplane. So as long as you can pass a medical, if you're diabetic, then you can become a commercialized pilot. Okay. I'm, I'm... So... To get a pilot's license, I want to make sure mm-hmm. I have this right. You need a physical to pass. You need to pass an eye yes, test. There's a, there's is there a, a paper written test? test is what they call it. Um, so it's per- mm-hmm. there's, there's number of hours number and of then hours. there's an oral test where it's legit. What the test is, is you sit down oh, wow. with this instructor and he drills you until you don't know a question. And it can go on for hours if you know everything. And they just keep going until you mess up. <laughs> because the thing about flying is, like, you physically can't know everything about flying, but they want to check to make sure that you know the basics enough that you're not going to kill anyone and yourself. So if you're hypothetically black in the 1920s, not only would you have to have someone train you, but you would also have someone have to find someone willing to give you that oral test. Is that right? In my research, I couldn't exactly pin down that you needed to do an oral test. Um, I think in the early stages of aviation, uh, it really didn't blossom until World War I. And most of the pilots that would then go on to become famous pilots were only pilots because they were thrown into training immediately at war. And if they survived, great, they're an ace pilot. If not, they're dead and they need to find another pilot. <laughs> Flying in the early ages was really a you-learn-as-you-go, which ended up in a lot of like regulations needing to be made because a lot of people were dying. So it wasn't until like the late 1920s that we started to see like oral tests and like really... Uh, hard credentials to become a pilot because back then it was do you have money do you have a sponsor do you have someone willing to teach you which was really hard for black people or any person of color during the 1920s yeah in in the 1920s looking back 100 years ago i wanted to celebrate female pilots but as i researched the most celebrated female pilot amelia Earhart, i noticed a very strange trend there's no discussion of black people in her history. However, two years before she received her pilot's license, Bessie Coleman of Atlanta, Texas, earned her pilot's license in a different country. And why doesn't she count? Like, why wasn't she awarded the notoriety of being the first American woman if she was truly the first American woman to have a pilot's license? She actually had to go to a different country because no one was willing to teach her. And she wasn't able to take the test or any any test here um so she had to go to france yeah so you mentioned world war one and that's really when planes were blossoming and uh female pilots such as elise raymond de la roche had been flying since 1909 so about a decade of being able to get all of that training um as well france was safe for particularly black people um, and people of color. There was um, 
a huge Harlem Renaissance movement in France. Uh, so basically anyone who was an artist or a musician or just uh, considered an intellectual, uh, especially in the, in the literature scene, would leave America, go to France, and become a part of this really big community that was centralized around the jazz movement. Yeah, that just makes me, in terms of like, how did you first discover Bessie Coleman? Like, I want to know that for you as a, a perspective as a white woman looking into this. How did you first come to know her? The first thought that came to mind was spite. <laughs> I just didn't like how she was writing her autobiography. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I like this. Or a follow-up question, what made you curious to think that there might have been someone else besides Amelia Earhart to be the first female pilot? Okay, so it's going to take a weird detour and then we'll get there. But to answer that question, I've got to talk about the Harlem Renaissance. Yes, please do. We love it. After the 1860s American Reconstruction, sorry, after the Civil War, there was an idea propagated that black people weren't smart enough to handle government positions or positions of higher power that for some odd reason they weren't able to you know, hit that equality point where it really matters. And that's in, that's in career fields, that's in government, and that's in where, where the power is. Power is in money and politics. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It took some time for that to build up. But as uh, a big community built in uh, Chicago, especially and in New York, there was the movement of the Harlem Renaissance. And that was people who in finding out about this propagated uh, idea of um, justifying Jim Crow laws, what the Harlem Renaissance did was said, no, we are illiterate, we can't handle this, um, and that there are artists and musicians and people who are phenomenal writers who deserve these positions of power and to deserve equality. And so it was really a movement to, of expression and of, of black communities making very strong statements about how they should be more valued in our society, in American society. That movement, especially in the 1920s, and especially with jazz, uh, expanded out from New York uh, to Chicago and LA and a little bit of Washington. Just a little bit, a little, Just a little bit. Uh, but also, what happened is a lot of a lot of people went to France, and created a, a jazz movement there. They had pretty much a French a French extension of the Harlem Renaissance, um, and that's because I've known about a lot of painters uh, who really grew when they once they were able to get to France. They were able to learn from more masters and learn more technical skills and therefore gain more notoriety. And a lot of writers did that as well. Um, and then Bessie Coleman was a pilot who went to France around that time. So I think that was definitely part of it is hearing about the Harlem Renaissance, which I'd never before heard about. And I learned about Except it because... Except for the Harlem Shake. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. Keep going. <laughs> So because of that, uh, which was on a stamp, like the post office is selling Harlem Renaissance stamps. I think everyone should go and check them out. It uh, is really unique art style. Gotta go there, guys. <laughs> Hold on. I've got them right here. I want to pull up who the artist is. <gasps> the the, this is totally like 
just a sidebar, but like when the Star yeah, Trek 50 anniversary came out, I totally went to the post office and was like, give me your Star Trek stamps. <laughs> It's like, I need them. And at first the guy was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then a few months later, he's like, oh, now I understand what you're talking about. The four names that are really celebrated on these stamps is Nella Larson, Arturo Schomburg, Anne Spencer. And it's these four very stylized uh, black faces that are just so beautiful. Like the art that went into this is really nice. Yeah, I'm excited to send out letters with these stamps on them. Ooh, send me one. <laughs> because of this movement that I didn't know about, I realized there probably is a lot of hidden history that unless you ask the right questions, you're not going to find it. Yeah, for sure. So I asked, like, who, okay, are there female black pilots? And I first learned about Mae Jemison. Who's Mae Jemison? <laughs> Mae Jemison was um, the first uh, astronaut who was a black female. And might I add... Did she survive? She did. She's still alive. Lesbian? She (gasps) is freaking gorgeous. Like, let's see. She was born in 1950. She's in her 70s. And that she is looking amazing. I know who we should contact next. (laughs) That would be incredible. I would totally... I think I would be too nervous to give a good interview. But... (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But yeah, Mae Jemison, I actually am considering doing uh, uh, another episode on. I think that her legacy deserves even more research. And so I mm-hmm. wanted to, I, what I realized that I could definitely do here is I have a lot of research on how Amelia Earhart got her license. And, you know, I was, I was going to just talk about her. And then I realized, no, we need to talk about both of them and to really understand, um, well, really understand how the feminist movement disenfranchised equality altogether and that especially white women participating in feminism their intentional leaving out of people of minority caused a division that american progress will have a very hard time uh, moving forward until we rectify that first split yeah, it's a it's a big problem. And I think in a white American school system, we forget like the powerful voices that actually affected this country and the way that we actually live and develop our technologies because I don't I'm sure about you, but like when we learned about the Roaring Twenties, it was all about the Freedom Riders like Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, but they never talked about like the black people that were actually contributing even more so to the to the Harlem Renaissance as you were talking about so I I I just love that we're uh, essentially taking down like the white fragility or the white oppression and piloting because a lot of people think still think that the aviation career is for white men only and that's just not true anymore so Let's go back to Amelia Earhart and Bessie Coleman. So what are some things that you you learned about Amelia Earhart that kind of overshadowed Bessie Coleman in ways that just weren't fair? Are you talking fame-wise or their early, early steps? Let's, let's do early steps first. I think chronologically, I think it'll be fun. 
and before before we get into that, I just want to mention that um, this change moving forward of realizing that feminism requires intersectionality. I know a lot of people are feeling very defensive and like they want to hang on to their what they were taught since they were kids or you know what they believed was true i just constantly have to remind myself and and my friends that if if you change that doesn't mean that everything about you will change and everything that's meaningful will change Mm -hmm. it will just be able to grow more yeah um I I 100% agree with that and, you know, with people defacing, in my opinion, rightly so, Confederate statues while other people will say, like, no, we shouldn't be doing this because it's part of a history. Yes, you can still learn from history and appreciate the efforts that people have put in, but it still doesn't necessarily excuse some of the things that they... Uh, perpetuated in history and to honor a person you really have to know the good and the bad side of them because it gives you a full rounded picture of history if you really want to know and really want to learn like to its truest point you have to go to the dark side go to the dark side as ever palpatine well, will say yeah if you want to grow as a person, you've got to acknowledge your dark side. If you want to acknowledge, you know, a society and, and really help them or a community, you got to see what's what's not working or mm-hmm. what's holding them back. I think my, my biggest frustration with history classes, like especially in public school, was just like making a person sound perfect. So, you know, Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, which you had a very good point on this morning and we will talk about Trash. soon. <laughs> We'll talk about in another episode. Thomas Jefferson was displayed as this perfect person. And he's a great example of a lot of politicians who are like, well, I've got to be perfect all the time. It's like, no, you can have loss. And it, and it caused a, you know, a voting society believe that politicians have to be perfect. That causes problems that probably don't necessarily associate with leadership. Yeah, yeah you can be a flawed human being and a good leader. I definitely believe that. Because I want to be a good leader, and I'm a flawed human being. <laughs> For sure. And, like, that's the only way you ever really, truly learn about yourself is through your flaws and your mistakes. But it takes a lot of power to look within yourself that a lot of people just don't have the energy for to go, okay, why am I this way? What what am I contributing to this, like, oppression of something and have to change it? Like, that's a big step. So when we're talking about Emilia Earhart today... Like, we're not disrespecting her in a way of uh, being disingenuous to her contributions to female uh, aviation, but we are saying, here's the other side of the story. And so that's why we're talking about Bessie Coleman in comparison to Amelia Earhart, because white privilege is still a problem, and it has been a problem since the 1920s, and it does affect history. And the thing is... If Amelia Earhart had partnered up with Bessie Coleman, had acknowledged like, "Oh, I'm perpetuating a problem," let like talk about a dream team. Like that would have, yeah, yeah that would have Honestly, done so they much like, good. They would have shook everything. It's like, um, it's like the same thing when Marilyn Monroe helped Ella Fitzgerald 
to really push her career into popular social media because she would refuse any sort of people that be like, well, like, we don't really support, like, Ella Fitzgerald because she's black. And she's like, well, if you don't support her, I'm not going to any of your shows. And if you want me to sing, you gotta best make sure that Ella is singing before me or after me. So, like, that's what it means to be, like, a true, like, white feminist ally is if you can help others boost their own voice. And so Mila Earhart could have 100% done that. And Bessie mm-hmm. Coleman could have been, like, her BFF for sure. Marilyn Monroe was either ignoring or just not acting on a scarcity mentality. And I think that that happens so often in history where someone's like, well, I did the selfish thing because if I didn't, then I wouldn't have an audience anymore. It's like, no, there will be an audience when things are like, if you're talented, there will be an audience. Mm -hmm. Get rid of that scarcity mentality. I actually wrote that on my fridge that like, all right, all right. So (laughs) yeah, what Amelia actually did. (laughs) Amelia Earhart, her father was a lawyer. Her mother uh, was well-to-do. They were mostly in Kansas and Philadelphia. uh, And she went to a private school growing up. She had, um, I didn't write down how many siblings she had. um, But I do know that at one point, she had an older sister who came into money and then also helped fund her education. So someone was paying for her education for her full um, pre-college years. And she dropped out of college. <laughs> That's true. Um, but, oh my God. So since you brought that up, uh, in her autobiography, here, I'll grab it so I can reference it. If uh, the audience is wondering, uh, Morgan is looking for her Amelia Earhart autobiography book so she can references. Hi, Morgan. This is just for you. <laughs> you know what? I don't need it. I can Google it super fast. That can be in your bonus episodes. <laughs> all, all the weird things we say that we have to cut. <laughs> I was realizing if I didn't have a full-time job, I would absolutely do all of the like bloopers and stuff and like transcribe (laughs) everything oh well hey itunes please sponsor us (laughs) please someone sponsor me (laughs) no um will you even take jeff bezo please (laughs) i don't think i would i'm like bitch i'm good yeah i can afford my own life (laughs) i will sponsor any mattress company or food, particularly food companies. If I could get a food company promo, that'd be great. I'm just saying. <laughs> Hello Fresh, come at me. Okay, so even in her autobiography called Last Flight, uh, she talks about college as if it's kind of a blasé thing. Like, so I just enrolled in Columbia University, which like at no point in time was it like blasé, you just get into Columbia University. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, so that's kind of her educational history. Um, She, you know, there were some negative things, like her father um, was an alcoholic for, as far as I know, most of her life. Um, Yeah. And she did work as a a World War I nurse, and so she decided that studying medicine was something that, you know, she could really participate in. And then she changed her mind. As one does. As any college person would do and then and then she um, saw a plane yeah. and someone barnstorming and she was like i want to do that instead yeah. um <laughs> so 
And then with Bessie Coleman, born Elizabeth Coleman, so she was raised on a sharecropping farm. So her father worked on a sharecrop. Her mother worked as a maid. This was in, she was born in 1892, less than 30 years after the emancipation of Texas. There were still a lot of places and a lot of, that were named after Confederate uh, soldiers. There still are. And there were a lot of Jim Crow laws that were pretty solidly in place by this time. <laughs> there was another podcast I listened to that was created in, back in 2012, and they phrased it as, as kids, they would pitch in in order to help on the farm. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, there were, there were just a few things where the phrasing wasn't um, as self-aware as maybe yeah. I would have preferred. Um, yeah. Another point, one of the narrators is like, yeah, she was actually really pretty, and I was just like, Oh, no. actually, was she? Oh, <laughs> like despite her father being a Native American and her mother being African American, she was quite beautiful. Oh. <laughs> actually, she was pretty. She's pretty. <laughs> um, but so so by pitched in, it means they had to sacrifice their education; otherwise, their family would lose the farm. Yeah, uh, almost directly translates. Yeah, I have a note here that Bessie would walk four miles each day to her segregated schoolhouse that was only one room. Yes. Like, that's dedication, folks. (laughs) Trying to remember the last time I walked four miles. Never. (laughs) Her father left the family uh, because on reservations he could escape discrimination and, and possibly have a better life for him. Um, and so her mom and her 11 Mm -hmm. siblings had to figure out how to live and scrap together a life from there. So at the age of 18, was able to scrap together enough to spend a semester in college. Um, And then she had to go back to work. She couldn't afford to keep going. And um, it's not like there were, um, what's the word? Like scholarships. Uh, It's not like there were scholarships for black people to, to go to school that just, especially not black women. She worked on and off doing a lot of manual and admittedly more demeaning work. Um, You know, like doing laundry, doing maid services. Um, Eventually, five years later, so she's 23, and she is working as a manicurist in Chicago. And I believe she was able to own her own manicure shop that was a little bit later in life that was after she went to to france and that shop was called the white socks barber shop and and so it's actually really cool because this barber shop i don't know if you have this in your notes but that's where she got inspired to start flying because they were serving a lot of world war one vets and they come in with their their flying stories and she was like oh dude i want to do this um and so she talked to robert s abbott or Abbott, who was the publisher for the Chicago Defender, and he told her about France, and he published her story about how she was this black manicurist who wanted to go fly and go study in France because she didn't have any opportunities here in America, and she actually got sponsored to go to France. So that little manicurist shop, like, really inspired all her dreams. Oh yeah. <laughs> I also have to say Robert Abbott is a very very cool figure in history and though we focus on women at this podcast I highly recommend going and checking out some more about him and uh, what he did for the Defender because the history behind their 
absolutely should be in more uh, public school books. And he's an, he's an incredible figure. Yeah, he's, he seems really awesome. And that move to France, and not even quite the move yet, but even before then, when her brother and other World War One veterans came home and were talking about things that were different in another country is the core of why I started this podcast, because it's important to hear about different perspectives and how things are doing, how people are doing things differently in foreign countries and what we can do with that information. Um, If someone starts going on hoverboards in Amsterdam, I think I would be very tempted to go to Amsterdam and figure out what's going on with (laughs) hoverboards and why, what we can do here. You know, like that, yeah. that communication, <laughs> that communication of innovation is so important. And it's especially important for people who are being oppressed. Like if there weren't a growing Harlem Renaissance movement in France, and if there wasn't, if jazz wasn't celebrated so much in France, I don't think there would have been an outlet here in the States for people of color. I would counter and say that I think there would be an outlet, but I don't think it would have been well accepted as it did if it wasn't for, like, France, like, essentially bringing in all these outcasts to really work on the art and promote themselves. I agree. I, I'm sorry. I misspoke. There would have been the outlet. I, I guess what I was saying is I don't think it would have lasted as long. If, if jazz hadn't been so celebrated in France, I don't know who would have carried on i don't know what would have caught um on the on the fabric of history (laughs) (laughs) yes this is pbs PBS (laughs) so how did bessie like france (laughs) i would i don't know but i do know that she came back to america and then she got kind of frustrated um like on her first flight here in america after she had her pilot's license she was able to borrow a plane but because it was borrowed, she wasn't allowed to do any tricks or anything fun. She just had to fly around. And that, though inspiring to be a black woman in a plane at all at that time, it really, really held her back. And on the flip side, Amelia Earhart could get like private lessons from like a female pilot. Like that's something Bessie could not get in America at all. And so, like, I don't know why she ever came back, to be honest. (laughs) Like, I would have just stayed in France. Like, those people actually respect you? Like, why would you ever come back? Oh, she had a point to prove. That's why I respect her so much as as a historical figure, because maybe I'm reading too much into the subtext, but I feel like she definitely had a point to prove, and she definitely did it by her future shows. It's like she was able to do more. Is she wouldn't perform in any shows if black people had to take a separate entrance so those Jim Crow laws of having to take two separate doors um she wouldn't perform and so they had to change that rule there was a lot of shows that were uh, advertised as like whites only and she was like I refuse to do this if 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 yeah people of color can't come and I mean she even was offered a movie deal later on and she refused to participate in that because she hated the was it Uncle Tom stereotypes that were being projected onto her. And she was like, I refuse to like continue this mentality. So at, at bet, like even more, I think being in France radicalized her 
to understand like she has a purpose here and it's to stand up against against white supremacy so to add on to that that movie was called shadow and sunshine and the reason why she refused was because the opening scene she would have been in ragged clothes kind of like ugly looking and had a uh, walking cane and no shoes and was like perpetuating black stereotypes as you were saying so she was like no (laughs) and to uh, to further continue on, like, why she had such an influence on these air shows, uh, I think we should describe a little bit more what barnstorming is. So, do you know more about barnstorming? Because I've, I've, heard, I've heard some pretty cool things about it. Uh, two examples that I know off the top of my head is uh, in Amelia Earhart's autobiography, she talks about the first time she saw a plane and he dive-bombed and then turned the plane towards the crowd. And so, I don't know, there were probably like five feet of room between her and the plane as he pulled up and passed her and her friends as they... Um, I believe she phrased it as like he tried to make them scamper or something like and that. And she was like, I stood there and I looked at him. <laughs> okay, she does use the line, the plane spoke to me as it flew by. I looked at the bull's eye and I said, you're mine. <laughs> to like put it into context what barnstorming is. So the, the name barnstorming comes from uh, when people uh, like would have uh, crop dusting planes kind of. And so they, what they would do is they would have races from the barn to about, like, a crowd of people. Crop and come dusting back. planes yes. are biplanes that are fit to carry one person, correct? Yes. So, and, so, and of course, as you get, like, younger teenagers who are flying around, they're doing crazy tricks. And then more people started to come, so that's why it's called barnstorming, because they're essentially storming from the barn. That's so country. Um, but essentially, they had, like, these... I know. And so then it got really popular. And so what people would do is like the pilots would train themselves to have like women on the biplane. So on their wings, they would stand out and like in a formation and do tricks on the on the planes. Um, And they would do like these crazy loops that are like really dangerous. And they would um, buzz is what they call they would buzz the, the the crowds, which is when they go really low level and just like, boom. My dad used to do that to all the like pubs he hated in Europe. So there, sorry, this is a sidebar that I think is just really funny. So there's just like one Scottish guy that my dad got into a big fight out about. So in his F-15E, a military grade airplane buzzed this guy's bar and that's illegal. <laughs> And really bad and really loud. Oh, boy. (laughs) So I think, like, that excitement is just kind of like the circus in general, which is why I called it, like, the circus for planes, is because it's, like, people doing extraordinary things that most people couldn't even dream of doing. And so that's why barnstorming was so popular, and they would just get people in drones to come, and why Bessie standing up against segregation was so impactful to do because one barnstorming would earn her a lot of money but also two the company would lose out if bessie didn't perform in those circuses one resource um if it was bad ethics versus money money always won so that's powerful think about that one kids when you have your privilege use it (laughs) and yeah because she didn't work off of a scarcity mentality i just want to nail that in one more time (laughs) for her counterpart uh what did amelia Earhart do with her career while Bessie was doing these 
barnstorming. What was what was Amelia doing? So Amelia was also doing barnstorming. Um, I, I can't tell if she was deeply passionate, but just a blase person, or or what here. Um, because like occasionally she would be like, "Yeah, I was doing whatever flying I could afford." What? <laughs> you could afford a lot of flying, Amelia. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry for saying that. Mm-mm. But but yeah, she was in. She was just very much in a place of privilege. So she got her pilot's license when she was 24. Um, her mother paid for her first plane. Um, this was on the West Coast. My partner is doing a lot of research on his own about Los Angeles, uh, especially as it was developing, because it's got a lot of very complicated race issues going on there. So at that point in time, Los Angeles was advertised as like, kind of, um, white people, like, like community. Like it's, it's a lot of homeowner associations, a lot of kicking out native people who already lived there for hundreds of years and a lot of bulldozing the native uh, or like the indigenous plants for palm trees and trees that quote unquote look nicer. Um, but can't grow there at all. Developers really hated the, the Joshua trees. But, but a big thing to note there is that, like, so her family moved from Kansas to Missouri, and it's one of those things with, if you don't know the history of these areas, you might miss the fact that, oh, they went to such a progressive democratic state. And it's like, no, actually, California was extremely uh, conservative at that point in time, and it was extremely racist. <laughs> if you want any validation on that, just listen. Just watch the uh, 1974 movie Chinatown. Does that movie does not hold up? And I'm mad that my film teachers made me watch that. <laughs> I, I would say to like add, uh, you should have your partner like legit play like the LA noir game because it's in Los. He's Se- loving it. Okay, he's watching it. Okay, um, and then there's also yeah, a... he's so into it. Okay, awesome. And then there's another book that I have that's called Al- Algorithms of Oppression: How Search Engines Reinforce Racism by uh, Sophia Noble, and it talks about how like uh, African American communities are specifically coded in search engines to be seen as impoverished and uh, not places any like sort of financial supporters should go so i think wow any of our readers and also your partner and you would probably like really enjoy this book it's really fucked up (laughs) yeah there's um there's a lot about systemic racism and location that is also another reason we should travel so that we can acknowledge that like oh hey things maybe aren't as fair as i thought they would be or were to also like pair well with what you just said about Amelia Earhart uh, gaining all this money, I believe her mom gave her a thousand dollars to help sponsor her flight, which is a lot of money <laughs> if you inflate it. I should actually look up that inflation right now. I'm gonna let you do that math, and I'm gonna talk to you about her first trip across the Atlantic. Basically, what happened there is someone called her up. And she said, I'm busy. And they were like, no, this is important. She was like, fine. She was offered a trip to, or an interview for a trip to be the first um, American woman to go across the Atlantic. An Irish flyer had already, Mm -hmm. a female Irish flyer had already done that. Um, But we don't need to talk Mm -hmm. about that because that's not America. (laughs) (laughs) 
If it's not America, it's not a port. Uh, so <laughs> it was her first trip across the Atlantic, um, and actually she was in the back seat the entire time and didn't do any of the flying. Um, but her name was definitely mentioned in the newspapers. <laughs> and I'm realizing how freaking important it is for newspapers to get the name and for the editor's choice to add that or to not add that. Um, and that's because with Bessie, uh, Bessie Coleman, her name was uh, explicitly removed from a particular flight that happened a few years after that. So so did you get that, that uh, number? Okay, what was that price? It's insane, dude. <laughs> okay, so her mother, so her dad gave her a $10 flight in the 1920s. So that's equivalent to $129.06. Okay. So the the uh, $1,000 that her mom gave her is equivalent to $12,819.70. Mom was packing, dude. <laughs> with the 12000 would you be able to buy a small plane nowadays? Hmm... A used plane. I know that that's what she did. Because I'm thinking, because I think for $12,000, my family could buy my granddad's Citabrio that he built from a kit. Uh, so, yes, you, you could. It's probably not in great shape. You're probably going to have to put a lot of money into maintenance. But, um, yeah, that's, that's essentially like two semesters of college that Amelia didn't go to. <laughs> she got about $12,000 from her mother and was able to purchase a used plane and pretty much from there she started doing shows like that was it yep just dropping out of college buying a plane gonna do some tricks with it gonna you know bust uh pump up my my gram you know with my cool flight pics uh, I'm gonna travel the states doing that and I guess I'll teach because I had a really good primary education and people will allow me or pay for me to be a teacher now like that was that was her life and and privilege is not the same as saying that she didn't have any struggles ever but privilege is being able to say she definitely could have done more for sure she could have done a lot more for the female pilots of all colors in her community but she she helped she really helped found white pilots which is still a rarity in today's commercial airlines so like if you are a female pilot and you just have your private license and you contact a major company saying hey i want to be a commercial like airline pilot most likely they'll be like oh my god oh my god please we will pay you money to go to school because we need equality in our system i just want to point this out like annika i don't think the, the mic is there so that you sound better. It's not so that you can use it as a prop. <laughs> I know. I, I started noticing that today. This is what happens <laughs> when you give me cool things, Morgan. I'm like, it's a prop now. <laughs> it's a toy. No, that's great. <laughs> so it, in, you know, it, it kind of some, just one last point I wanted to make is, yeah, like um, the legacy that Amelia Earhart left was a, a very feminist one, like that women deserve the right to fly. Um, the legacy that Bessie Coleman left behind was this really good quote about her career and the choices that she made. And it, it is, I decided blacks should not have to experience the difficulties I had faced. So I decided to open a flying school and teach other black women to fly. And that, that mentality of these difficulties, the hardship that I had to go through, should not be experienced by anyone else, is 
definitely a mentality that I can build into my own life and to say, I don't, you know, the things that I've experienced are the things that were really frustrating for me. I don't want anyone to feel that way. And so that legacy is, is very important to continue perpetuating. She should have gotten a movie. Uh, the Tuskegee Airmen all knew who Bessie Coleman was. <laughs> the Chicago Defender uh, did a great job after. So there was an unfortunate accident that led to her death when she was 34. Um, white newspapers didn't mention her name. And, however, black newspapers, especially the Chicago Defender, did mention her name and make it very clear that her legacy needs to be remembered. And 10,000 mourners showed up to her funeral. It was led by uh, Ida B. Wells, the famous activist. So she had a huge impact on the black community and still does. So anyway, make a progressive movie about her, please. Yes. Because... That'd be great. I would watch that. I, I would too. I would pay big money for that. Yeah, I'd pay 20 bucks for that uh, theater seat. However, I wouldn't go to the theaters because they're terrifying. <laughs> I would risk Corona. Oh my god. Yeah, that is um, a short summary of Bessie Coleman. Moving forward, I'm definitely going to learn more and probably bring her up a lot more in future episodes. We need to try better in history. Uh, to ask the question of if there were people being ignored or whitewashed in this circumstance is very important. And also to travel in order to find new perspectives of how people are being treated. That's my takeaway. Uh, this has been Women Travel. Thank you for joining us and stay safe out there. Bye. <laughs>